Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Leader Voices. Please note that this episode deals with subject matter that brought up references to suicide. The reference is in context and is by no means graphic in any way. That being said, I thought this would give me an opportunity for this PSA. If you or anyone you know is dealing with thoughts of suicide, I urge you to call the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Simply dial 988 anywhere in the United States. Additionally, I encourage you to check out some of the resources in our show notes, all available at leadervoices.global. Hi, I'm Dr. Sedna Bokaria, and this is Leader Voices, a show about leaders and their infinite ability to change the world. Leading an organization while simply navigating one's life is often difficult on its own. Now, imagine charting those waters while dealing with feelings of anxiety, apathy, hopelessness, guilt, irritability, fatigue, general discontent, and even thoughts of suicide. Sounds like a lot to deal with while juggling what we call life. But for those who live with depression, these are some of the symptoms and challenges they deal with on a regular basis. My guests today invite you inside their worlds with an all access pass to their candid accounts of what it's like to live and lead with depression. My guest today has an impressive background ranging from politics to modeling to founding Bigger Than Depression, which is an online community dedicated to not only surviving through depression, but actually thriving. Please welcome Elsie Ramsey to Leader Voices. Hi, Sedna. It's so great to be here and talk with you. It's such a pleasure and honor. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. You have such a diverse background. I don't think we've had anybody on the show that's been uh, in politics, modeling, advocacy. Um, Tell me a bit about that ride. How did you get from there to where you are now? Well, I'll start off saying, because I think there's probably a lot of other people who can relate to this. At every stage, as, as you say, modeling politics, I thought I've made the wrong decision and I'm stuck. So I just want to start by saying it wasn't until I was 37 that I actually found my calling and I started graduate school at 39. So we go through these periods in our lives where we may feel stuck in a rut, but Eventually, I think if you are open to reinventing yourself, you can always um, find a work life that's more satisfactory. So I dropped out of high school as a high school dropout in my junior year, um, and I was uh, shipped off to Milan to start a modeling career and um, very quickly decided I'd made a big mistake, but there I was, and I was a young girl, and I felt committed. I would not, um, I asked all the time, people are interested in the fashion business, I would not recommend it to people. On the other hand, it was what I wanted to do at the moment, and my parents couldn't really have intervened because the agency, whoever signed you, kind of takes responsibility for your, for 
investing and financing. So they bought my plane ticket and I was kind of in their hands. So and, and how old were you? 17. Wow. Yeah, I was really young. So um, do, do we make great decisions at 17? Generally not. Uh, and this was no exception. However, I did kind of grow up in the sense that I was traveling internationally by myself and being on sets and trying to advocate for myself in a very, very, very tough business. Um, in fact, in sometime in the early 2000s, there was a class action lawsuit against a number of agencies in New York, one of which was mine, for price fixing. <clears throat> so they all got together and agreed that they were going to take a 25% commission. I don't know. That's, ignore the number. But um, so I actually got some, some, some money back. But kind of all the things you might imagine about an exploitative industry and being a young woman was present. However, I was lucky because there were no, I didn't suffer any major trauma. I had, you know, no, no me too moment that, that kind of altered my life on, but it was, it was, you know, being a, I was being objectified um, and, and kind of, appreciated and understood for one thing and one thing only, which was the way I looked. And uh, yeah. I have a, yeah, I have a question. So many things are going through my head. So you're in high school taking probably, you know, typical high school classes. Next thing you know, you're in Milan as a model, which sounds like a dream for someone who's 17, any 17 year old, I, I can't imagine that not being very, very exciting. But also understanding that as someone who is associated with traditional beauty, many times people expect you to behave and um, encompass a certain aspect of existence based solely on what you look like. Um, I know that a lot of research shows that even things as simple as Disney, they always um, show, you know, the princesses are very virtuous and beautiful and pure and they behave in a very specific way that's been traditionally uh, designed by patriarchy. So I wonder, you know, thank goodness you were not abused or experienced trauma, which we hear a lot about, but you still experienced the dark side of what you were supposed to be like. So talk to me a little bit about, as a 17-year-old, what that must have felt like for you, just while you're still trying to even figure out who you are. I don't even know who I am. <laughs> I'm much older than 17. Yeah, so it's funny. I would say it's the anti-Disney princess that um, the, the business, the photographers, the agents want to see in a young woman. So that means being sort of sexually free, uh, very comfortable with your body in a way that most 17 year olds aren't, but quickly happened for me because you know, people are always kind of taking your clothes off and putting them back on like you're a, a, a mannequin. Um, there's engagement in nightlife is encouraged because there are people whose business is to kind of get models into nightclubs and get paid by the head. So we would have promoters who would find out where the models apartments were and just hang out and kind of buzz our apartments and call again and again. And, um, and, and the agents were, were 
fine with it because there's the idea is like you're you're a fun person you're open-minded maybe you'll meet do some networking out there but you are a um you know it's it's beauty for sale so in any way that that can be reinforced that it that you're a product and you're selling yourself um certainly virtue was not part of the package uh at all and i was this very very innocent kid i i didn't have adult experience in in the ways in which i maybe they hoped i did or was open to having so there was a, a real conflict there um it was interesting also being in europe uh there were maybe a few americans but there were a lot of women from europe and then there were a lot of women from eastern europe and some of those models were coming from um, economies that were really suffering. And so maybe modeling was the be all and end all. Maybe it wasn't, I'm gonna go back to college, which was always kind of in the back of my mind. And so through no fault of their own, it, it pushed the industry in a direction where maybe it was a little bit less, um, there was less oversight and maybe more willingness to engage in, in activities that were more adult than were appropriate for, for people our age because sure. there was always pressure. Sure, yeah, I can imagine if you have a, a, a young girl from um, an impoverished Eastern European country where this is kind of in her mind um, rooted as her ticket out and maybe you know extremely limited in her options compared to someone like you who luckily in the back of your mind knew that you know college was an option so perhaps you know you had more of kind of a safety in terms of um, your agency and understanding the power that you hold would you say that um, the modeling industry was a catalyst to your depression it certainly didn't make it any better so I was already depressed as part of the reason I wasn't working hard in high school. I'd always been a good student and I'd been fortunate enough to go to private schools. And so, um, but there were so many school changes through the moving and um, stuff going on in the family. And I was, so I was clinically depressed. The modeling, I would say, yeah, I, I got to Milan in the winter. It was gray, like Paris, beautiful city, but your model apartment is in the ugliest part of town. I remember there being graffiti everywhere and no one cleans up after their dog like you have to in New York. And you're on the subway all day going to these, you know, you have to find your way around a city. We, if you know Milan, it's all circles, and piazzas, and it's lonely. Um, and just to, just to go back one second around this assumption of, of being uh, from a, from a, disempowered situation. I remember talking to the head of the agency, Lorenzo Petrini, who I not too long ago found out was in um, Epstein's black book. So, wow. you know, gives you, gives you a sense of the unsavory nature. Sure. Um, but I, you know, I remember sitting down, he was a, he ran the, ran the agency and I was saying, I want to go home. And he said, so you want to go home and be beat by your husband in a trailer? or would you like to stay in Europe? And I, I almost, I was struck speechless because the, 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 I mean, it was, I'm not, you know, super privileged. My parents like didn't, I, I paid for college myself, but 
this idea that I was, you know, coming from poverty says a lot. It sure. says like models are coming from a place of desperation or there's enough of them that are that uh, such a broad-based assumption could be made. So yeah, um, it, it added to my, to my kind of uh, low self-image. I was, as I said, objectified. And, and what I think everyone does in that situation is, is shut down, power down a little bit is how I describe it. So that I'm kind of not, my body is not, it, it wasn't sexual anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't part of my, my humanity. It was like this, it's hard to describe, but, but as I was doing photo shoots in lingerie or whatever I was doing and I'd be handled, you know, people would be touching my face and my body, not even saying hello or knowing my name. Um, you know, you never are not a girl in the modeling industry. Anyone who's watched any of these Tyra Banks shows, mm -hmm. you can be in your 30s or 40s and they're still going to call you a girl. So, you know, that kind of tells the story better than I could. Um, so you're, you're, yeah, you're being put through the paces. So it didn't help. And then, so as I got, I, I 23, I retired and I, I took a step back into what would be considered more standard life by going to school. I was, um, I got into psychotherapy at 25. And one of the things I had to work on was, was this, these feelings I had about men and sex and I didn't have a fantastic relationship with my father growing up. So it, it just like, you know, exponentially the issues grew. Um, but diving into to psychotherapy at 25 and I'm still in therapy, I'll, probably a lifer just because even though I'm in maintenance mode now, I think it's, it's a part of self-care. And I, I really think everyone should to some extent engage. Um, sure, I absolutely agree. Um, how, do you mind talking a little bit more about your depression? Like when did you first realize that you, you had depression? I talk about my depression for a living, so I'm more than happy to do it. I find it's very healing for me to, to be able to, to be given an opportunity to share it publicly because we spend most of our lives hiding it. So I, I have decided I have a narrative now that is that is my own and it's it's different than the one I heard growing up. The one I heard growing up was that when we moved to the Boston area and I was like three or four and I was in preschool in Cambridge, the the teachers, it was a very touchy-feely preschool, they sat down with my parents and they said, Elsie is not the hale and hearty kid that her peers are, she holds a lot in. And so my parents um, put me in therapy instantly. And I had some really wonderful therapists who would, I remember playing Candyland or whatever, shoots and ladders and enjoying myself, um, being with these very gentle adults who had a very loving presence. Um, and I think at that point, at that very young age, I started thinking of myself as, um, as, as different or weaker or more fragile or less able to negotiate life. And so as the school changes continued, you know, I changed schools in like first or second grade and I would, get, I would get a handle on things and I changed schools again. 
my one of my kind of diagnoses was that I had this pathological shyness. Now, if I rewind and think of myself as a you know two year old, I was I was a kid who would jump in the deep end and crawl out, taking a nap, crawl out of the window, cross the street, and go over to the zoo myself. So I would say I was not a fearful child. I think it was very intense for me to move across the country and be thrown into a new environment and then continue to do so. So it compounds itself. Sure. Um, so I, you know, middle school comes and seventh and eighth grade, we're in California, yet another new city. And I would say that's when it, it became really clinical because I just remember this feeling descending on me. I remember walking around campus in eighth grade. I was in a really competitive private school and kind of feeling like a, a zombie. I'd never had, had that experience before. And, um, and so I think sometime maybe in sophomore year of high school, another move, we got my parents put me in, um, in therapy with a psychiatrist who prescribed me medication. So at 16, I went on Prozac or another antidepressant. And that was my beginning of, of psychiatric um, or pharmaceutical drugs as a, as a support to talk therapy. And I have been on medication since. But it took me until I was... 25 and got into a therapeutic relationship as an adult to really start to unpack the the things that were holding me back and and my deepest pain and that took there was at least a year where I couldn't quite go there because it takes tremendous bravery to to participate in therapy I say participate because it's it's cooperative it's not, you're not a passive person while the doctor is doing the work. And it takes bravery because you're going in there and you're not only willing to experience pain, but you're, you're talking about things that, you're, that are very, very private. And in my case, it had to do with men and sexuality and things like that. And I had a male therapist. I think my family thought that that was a good idea because I'd always had women my issues were with men. So it took about a year of trusting enough. And then I, I kind of started laying it out and the healing started to begin. And the healing I'd say in therapy is, is people say a lot to me, like, why, why do you think it's helpful to kind of relive trauma and talk about experiences that have been painful? That doesn't sound productive to me. And I'll say, it's not, it's, that's not what it is. It's the relationship with the therapist. It's the alliance, it's the connection that, that helps free you from your prisons. Sure. It's a very affirmative personal relationship if you find the right doctor. Um, sure, and I mean, I've, I've done some, some research. Um, Brene Brown talks a lot about what ingredients are necessary for individuals to feel shame and secrecy is one of them, uh, secrecy, um, I think isolation, judgment. And so how did you go from recognizing your own depression to creating a platform for others to really um, free themselves from the isolation and secrecy and, and shame really? 
Well, I think that I'd always felt that it was very healthy to be able to connect with others around having a, a mood disorder. So in, in modeling, again, anti-Disney princess, um, everyone was <laughs> on anxiety drugs or antidepressants. So like we could talk about it openly. It was part of the deal. I had a booker once say, the crazier the model, the better the model. So we were all right. Then I got into to politics and I, like, I, I would have been some, a liability. I imagine this, I was working for the presumptive next mayor of New York and so shut down mode, right? But in those moments in modeling, it, one of the bright spots was being able to talk and talk to people. And often I've always been so into doing all the research and reading all the books. It's been part of my way I felt like I had some control. Those conversations really meant a lot to me. And, and often people would come away grateful that I'd shared maybe something that was useful to them. So, but many take many, many years later and my, my father died uh, out of the blue, he had a heart attack. And I just moved to Austin for a couple of years to kind of decompress from New York. And I inherited a small amount of money and it just gave me a little bit of time because I was someone who went from college to job to job. I never had the luxury of, I think many of us don't with student loan debt of, of kind of thinking through really strategically what our next professional move, that's a, that's a huge luxury and I hadn't had it. So for the first time I was able to just exist and, and think, and I was also grieving. I think grieving opens up this, this space for you to do some introspection because it's, you know, you're, you're, you're grieving a loved one, but you're also kind of thinking about the fact that you're alive and what your place in the world is and how you're engaging with the world and are you happy? And I wasn't. And I started to think, what would I do if I could do anything? And the first thing that came to me was, was sharing and writing and communicating and hopefully helping people who felt isolated and lonely in their, in their pain, and because I did too. And I thought, this is something, you know, I wanted connection. So it was, it was self-serving as well. I noticed um, on your website when, when I go on there, and I, I understand, I think, a little bit better now because of your background in modeling, but the photos of you, they encompass a boldness and a, a confidence, but almost a, um, I want to say it's kind of like the fighting feeling I see it in the image you know it's it's kind of like I think of like all the messaging and branding with like beat cancer you know and you see it like I see that on your face in those images and I've read some research about how a lot of people are using photography and art especially self-portraits specifically to battle depression and I wonder if that was your tactic or your intention, I should say, in some of the ways in which you designed a wonderful site. So that's a great question. And it's, um, you're really hitting on something that was a big part of this process. So I often think of modeling as kind of this wasted vacuum of years where I should have been in school and should have been doing a lot of other things. And then I started to do this work and at the center of my mission is to 
disrupt people's expectations of what depression and mood disorders look like. Because part of the part of the stigma is this idea that mentally ill people are screaming on the subway or not making sense or violent. And the actuality is, I mean, depression is the biggest um, disability uh, condition for disability in the world. So a lot of us, the numbers are, are with us. And what does it look like? It doesn't often look like someone in a psychiatric hospital or someone who is talking to themselves. And so I made this kind of careful decision after a lot of thinking to sort of bring some of the modeling stuff into presenting my story because I thought people are drawn to, to glamor naturally. And I've, I've kind of fought against that through my professional life. Like I'm not, please, you know, like, please mm -hmm. don't judge me based on my appearance. Please look at my mind. Please listen to me as, I feel like I've often been kind of um, written on. Yeah. The, yes, the minute I talk about modeling, I mean, it's never been on my resume, but finally I was like, I'm gonna use the fact that I'm comfortable in front of a camera, that you know, I can do photo shoots that are like, I know what I'm doing in front of a camera. And if I use images and, and you know, whatever part of me does feel comfortable with glamor to sort of, reach people and help them understand in a very basic way that that depression is is something that is present in in people of all walks of life and maybe people you you idealize or look up to or think have lives that are vastly more exciting or better than your own but it took me a while to get there because i have so many years of of feeling um you know in new york it's all about your brains and I'm, I wanted to focus on my intellect and I had to hide kind of a hide like high school because people are like, ooh, really, you're a model? And it's like, yes, but I'm broke and I'm, you know, also a, a nerd. And so it's such a powerful thing. Like people are so kind of drawn to it that they kind of write off everything else. Anyway, I decided this can be useful for me now. So I'm glad that the images express, uh, you know, sort of agency, because that's what I'm going for. Yeah. But I'm also obviously like fully made up and they are, um, you know. Fierce. I would say fierce right. is the They're word I would selfies. use. And is, do I look that way when I'm depressed? Probably not. But the point is, sometimes I do look that way when I'm depressed and you wouldn't know. Because right. this is the this is the performative part of of mood disorder. So it's fascinating. In that way, I think it's a it's hopefully effective. And I'm glad you gave me that feedback. Yeah, I, I felt it. There was a fierceness. That's the word I would use in that uh, the way in which you, you know you think of glamour and um, high fashion, and there's this projection of um, fierceness, boldness, confidence that's usually associated with an object or a design or you know an item of clothing, whatever it is, jewelry. But when I saw the images, and it didn't click to me till we had this conversation, that's what I see. I see that fierce, bold confidence while you're really saying, hey, I struggle with depression. I've always struggled with depression, and this is what it looks like. Um, so I, I appreciate that very much. 
I have a question for you in terms of, you know, a lot of research nowadays is really focused on vulnerability, with, specific to leadership. So leading with authenticity, leading with vulnerability, um, leading with, um, I want to say a, a new age twist to kind of poking the holes of what professionalism means. So when we're talking about depression and leadership, leading as a leader fighting depression, and then leading others who are fighting depression. What can you speak to with regard to that challenge? Well, I'm first of all, I'm so happy that all of a sudden we're in this environment where, you know, heads of health tech companies, because I'm starting to work in that world, are coming out and saying, um, I I didn't become a leader until I became vulnerable. Um, there was a a founder of a health tech company who recently wrote a very personal note that he put on LinkedIn that was to the board of his his company uh, saying that he was someone who kind of had trauma in his life and, and used work and overwork possibly to push down the pain. And finally it had caught up with him and he was suffering from depression and needed to take, it was something like six months off and, and he, really appreciated the support, but he wasn't going to be engaging on, on social media and he was going to be away from a while, away a while. And it was so brutally honest and it addressed this topic, which now highly successful people are starting to talk about that, you know, some people deal with depression by, by overachieving. And um, it's certainly a way to keep yourself feeling validated and distracted and to see CEOs now coming out and saying, when I let my team know, I opened up a whole, you know, this whole kind of layer, new layer of, of trust and intimacy with my team and started a dialogue and now we're working, you know, so much better. And it's, this is the environment we're in right now. And that feels so, so good. So it's obviously not something I'm alone in, in stressing. I became the manager and the leader I wanted when I, the first job I had where I managed a team, I decided to be the person I had wished for in my other jobs when I would be completely ignored and not mentored. And um, I thought I'm gonna be present for the people who work for me. And um, so I did performance evaluations and one-on-one -on -one weekly meetings. And I wanted them to feel that I was trying to foster their growth and support them. Um, and it, it's interesting, all of us who are leaders, because we, there's a tension between being an authority figure, but also feeling um, connected mm -hmm. and, and there being an element of, of friendship. You have to do both. Um, and if, you, if you're successful with it, you're gonna produce some wonderful work together because people have, um, it, they believe in the mission, they believe in you and everyone's more productive. I have never worked in an office setting um, since COVID, we're all doing this virtual stuff. So anyone that hires me now and I do a fair amount of consulting and and writing for other companies knows because it's all over 
LinkedIn, it's all over the web, you know, this is who I am. So I, <laughs> it's not something I could cover now. So that, that's kind of nice going into right. interviews, knowing that that won't be held against me. Um, when I was in more traditional office settings, I was not talking about my diagnosis, but I was, I was living it by, um, by, by expressing vulnerability when I felt it and when it was appropriate. Um, I also learned the appropriateness. No, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you, but I'm curious. Talk to me about the appropriateness because it's so challenging and it's like, it goes back to vulnerability. So it's like, um, I've interviewed a lot of stand-up comedians and one in particular comes to mind where she said, you know, if you ask a comic, how was your day? And they're battling depression, they'll turn to you and say, you know, I'm having a really bad day. I'm, my depression is really, really hard right now. In a traditional office professional setting, whatever that means today with COVID and, you know, the shift to virtual, we ask people all the time, so how are you today? And many times we don't really want to know, you know, so where's the appropriateness? What does that mean? Knowing so, that you probably don't know, because who knows? <laughs> no, I mean, and it's different in every situation, but <laughs> one of the silver linings of COVID has been that we are now talking more about when you when we say, how are you? We, we mean it a bit more. So we are maybe expecting an answer from someone, especially when we were in lockdown. It's like, it's, I'm really having a hard time with children right now. Or I'm, you know, and and we for for a for a hot minute. It's not a hot minute. It, it, it's a while. Um, we're being more honest when we ask that question. And I've written extensively about how I really hope that carries over as we return um, to to a more like what quote unquote normal um, structure because it's so healthy. And um, but but beforehand when. Um, you know, if you work in, in business and in politics and in more kind of conservative office settings um, to, to, especially if you're managing people or even if you're not, you could um, jeopardize your authority. Um, you could mark yourself as someone who is potentially unreliable or won't perform, you know, can't be counted on to perform consistently. When I applied to graduate school, again, the cat's out of the bag. So I don't really have a choice about, you know, disclosing it, but I was worried, I was applying to Johns Hopkins and I was worried that talking about my depression would, would maybe make the, the admissions committee think, hmm, maybe this person won't be able to make it through the program. Hmm. Um, and I've never had trouble doing that. But if you hear someone has clinical depression, that wouldn't be an unreasonable assumption. So I think expressing vulnerability, you have to wait for your moment. Um, with my teams, I, I once had someone working for me who had a tremendous amount of anxiety and that uh, surfaced when she'd need to, go, you know, I'd have her go into the city for, for something work-related. And, and she, she disclosed to me that, I, was a 9-11, post 9-11 trauma around taking the subway into lower Manhattan. And, and so at that point she discussed with me because she wanted, she wanted to be able to, to not have to do this part of her job. And we had a very honest discussion where she said, I've, you know, very serious anxiety. And, and then I got to 
to talk a little bit about it and, and talk a little bit about my own challenges. And it was in, in my office, it was private. And I think it, it if anything, it reinforced our, our relationship. Well, we stayed intact as manager team member. So the point, the point is, you know, oversharing or, or too much disclosure would, would undermine, I think, like the, the orderly um, atmosphere in an office. It's not a therapist's office. On the other hand, when the opportunities present themselves, and they, they always do, uh, you work with people, you get to know them. Sure. I think that those conversations should be had and that they should not be shied away from. Sure. No, that's an excellent example of a very safe conversation that really, I, I imagine, you know, cemented your connection even further by both of you sharing very human experiences. And uh, throughout my experience on this podcast alone, I've learned so much about kind of the evolution of traditional leadership and the ways in which this traditional leader and this image of this person who's really more robotic than anything no longer exists. We don't, we don't want leaders like that. We want leaders who demonstrate and um, really live life in, uh, with an emphasis on humanity. And I think understanding those boundaries and also understanding that it's okay to push them a little is very powerful for developing authentic connections. Um, yeah, and wonderful. you have the private sector now fully recognizing that mental health is a workplace issue. When you look at turnover and absenteeism, those research shows that those are, those are things that are, are causally connected with um, mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Those things cost um, organizations lots of money. So you see these companies um, like Ginger and Myra coming and making this huge splash where they are, you know, employers are purchasing um, software that will give their employees access to mental health support that is, that is kind of best in class. And that movement is also a, a wonderful kind of like, um, indicator of, of this, this change in how we think of, of the workplace and what the boundaries of the workplace are. Um, so that may what, have been tangential, but I just wanted to mention it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great shift to A, having authentic conversations or pushing the desire to have authentic conversations about mental illness and mental wellness in uh, the workplace, but the other thing is actually providing employees with um, resources to support. Uh, so what advice would you give uh, listeners who want to be great leaders, but struggle with depression? Okay, I'm gonna say, first of all, your depression is an asset. It is 100% an asset when you are going into the workplace and you're gonna be climbing into, you know, up the ladder and becoming a leader. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Those of us who have lived with depression and survived it and thrived through it, we have, we've, we, we know, we know the dark side and we've been in the trenches um, 
and we've won against a foe that is um, one of the toughest out there. And in those moments in a therapist's office or when we're by ourselves or, or when we're with friends, we, we've been fighting and that just like exercising has created these emotional muscles that are very strong. And being in a workplace and being a leader is, is largely interpersonal. It's how you navigate relationships. Um, it's being diplomatic. It's being able to present ideas from um, a, an angle or perspective that could, you know, solicit sympathy from people who don't agree with you. So all of the work you've hopefully done in therapy, all of the fighting you've done, these are these. This is part of your war chest. And if you're if you're coming into the workplace, you know, sadly a lot of people still haven't um, been in therapy. Maybe because they've, you know, if you don't have to, you usually don't. And so it gives you, it gives you an edge. Um, it really does. And I didn't realize that until I started to feel more empowered in my depression. Um, so, so don't feel that it puts you at a disadvantage, feel the exact opposite way and, and pull on the resources that it has given you. Um, and then I'd also say, you know, the other thing that the other gift you have is that you have um, a tremendous amount of ability to empathize. You have a really big heart. You understand suffering and you, um, you can look at your team or if you're a politician, your constituents, whomever you're serving or leading and, and feel connected in a way that's more than skin deep. You know, you, you just understand suffering um, in a way that's, that's not just intellectual. Mm -hmm. And that connects you with your mission and with the people who you are, as I said, you know, leading if it's a movement or if it's an office. Um, so feel, feel accomplished, feel that it's, it's given you um, great tools to, to, on your, to use on your journey. I appreciate that answer so much. Depression as an asset. This is fantastic. I can't thank you enough for inspiring me, for in sharing your wisdom with our listeners. I think it resonates with more people than we can even imagine. And as time continues and we are really spending more time focused on not having shame and secrecy around depression, we're going to notice that everything that you're sharing is really front and center to more people than not. My next guest today has a dynamic background. He's an extraordinary example of thriving with depression. He's one of the top up-and-coming comics in America today, and I am pleased to welcome Tristan Bowling to Leader Voices. Hi! How are we doing? <laughs> Fantastic. Tristan, welcome to Leader Voices. Let's just dive right in. So uh, tell us about your life. You're a young man, extremely talented stand-up comedian, and I think anyone who's ever seen you would agree that you're gifted. If I remember correctly, you hit the comedy scene at age 15. Yeah. Tell us about that ride and how you got to where you are today. Uh, it was weird. <laughs> I mean, like, doing comedy at 15 isn't easy. And it's like uh, the first place I ever did stand-up comedy, stand-up Scottsdale, rest in peace. Uh, it was... Uh, 
I had to bring my dad every single time I went because I wasn't allowed in the club. So I'd basically go from after school on Wednesday, sit there for like two and a half hours so I can choose when I wanted to go on the list. Because I went, the first time I ever went, I showed up when uh, the list was out. Uh, and so I was 22nd on a Wednesday performing for my dad, the host, and one other guy, and like the bartender. But after a while, I kind of got into the rhythm of it and just, you know, haven't stopped. It was weird. It's weird just because thinking about how long I've done it, like April makes uh, seven years. So whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to cut you up. So rewind. So you're 15. What grade is that? Uh, I was a sophomore in high school. So you're a sophomore in high school, and one day you just wake up and you're like, "I'm gonna go and do stand up." No, I was. I've had. I had a theater background and stuff like that. I always loved performing. I was in plays, and I love musical theater. So I, uh, I uh, was doing that a lot. I just loved being on stage, and then I just started. Me and my dad would go on walks at night around like our local like community man made lake. And uh, we would just talk about just me just riffing with him, essentially, just trying to make him laugh. And one day I was at a drama club after party from one of the plays, and I was just telling stories by the fire. And someone's like, hey, you should try doing stand-up. And I'm like, I think I'm gonna. And then I just didn't stop from there. I mean, like, I saw people like, I know that Bo Burnham started when he was really young, too. So I'm like, it's not impossible. That's incredible. It must take a, a serious amount of courage, especially at that age, to just get up. So what was the first time like? Uh, it was, eh, I mean, I, I mean, the first time ever for like doing stand-up for everyone is like never that great. I mean, and even if it is, it is followed by, like no one just starts off killing and then doesn't stop. Like I did, I uh, for my first time, I just told a story about how I pooped my pants at Disneyland when I was like <laughs> twelve, which is like too old to poop your pants. Exactly. And uh, it was it was just me telling it to like like four people, and afterwards I'm like, all right, so I did it once. Now I gotta now I know what I need to do. I need to get here earlier, and then I do it again, and then it's just like okay, so then the next time is building and working off of every single set, just being like trying to tweak stuff and like get more comfortable with being on stage and uh, just going around. Like I've done so many shows in this Valley in Phoenix. It's ridiculous. Like all, all the way from, I, I mean, I just moved out to like Phoenix recently with my chick. Shout out my chick. Um, <laughs> no, but just when, I mean, previously to that, like previous to like five months ago, I've been living in the West Valley like the entire time. And so when I would go over to Mr. Ricky Boy's, Mr. Ricky Boy's house of hoo-ha laughs, uh, it would take like 50 minutes just to get there because I'm in Goodyear. So it's uh, it's nice to be able to uh, somewhat be like centralized, but also like have a general idea of where everything is. Right, like I know right. The, I know the highways <coughs> around here way too well. Right, right. So let, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between depression and genius. We know that research indicates that there is a correlation between depression and creativity. And specifically, there's research that suggests that gifted children are more prone to depression because of essentially a heightened awareness and a perpetual feeling of not really fitting in. Yeah. Tell me about how you discovered that depression was part of your life. Is there a moment where you know that it's 
a significance? It's always kind of been with me. Like, I've <laughs> always had, like, negative self-esteem. Like, ever since I was a little kid, like, my mom will attest. She's been, like, I would be, like, a little kid, and I'm like, hey, do you want to just throw me in the garbage? I'm sorry, I'm annoying. She's like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? You're my son. And I'm just like, yeah, but I suck. I'm sorry. And I'm, like, seven. And uh, it just, it happened really, I haven't ever really shaken it. I don't know, like, if there's ever been, like, a turning point where, like, my ice cream falls and I'm like, oh, God, life is terrible. But it just, um, it's kind of been something that, I mean, most recently within the past, like, couple, five, six years, I've been trying to properly medicate it, stuff like that, just figuring out because I've had some... uh, no good times in the past. Like, every day it fluctuates. Like, depression isn't something where it's just, like, you can clock it in on a schedule where it's, like, Monday through Tuesday you have depression three times on Thursday. And it's, like, no, it's it comes in waves. And, like, for, in like, this past Saturday wasn't doing that great at all. Like, um, it, and, uh, it just, uh, it, it's just, uh, every day is uh, the ebb and flow, peaks and valleys. But it's nothing, like, as long as you have, like, somewhat of a good kind of unit around you, which I feel like with the Phoenix comedy scene I have, and especially just, like, with my friends. Like, I don't have a lot of friends, but I have some. And they are, like, the ones you need, you know? It's like, sure. like... Uh, Joey Diaz uh, it's just like you don't need 50 people like you can have three people who are down you can take over a country sure yeah it's a you just it's it's weird especially because I know my family kind of doesn't understand it really like they're warming up to it just because they've been dealing with it for so long but like when I first was like because I've been in the situation where I'm like, oh, I want to, I'm, I'm done. I'm like, I want to take myself out. And my parents just don't understand that. I'm like, and it, it will come to the point where I'm just like, I have to explain it. I'm just like, listen, I know you don't understand this, but like my brain is wrong. And like, I, I can't really control it. And it's nice to know that somewhat that's correlated with genius. That is a upside. <laughs> I wouldn't describe myself as that. But I would, uh, I'm a little goofy boy. But I do my best to kind of be smart in some ways. But it just, it's it's all, every day is a spectrum. It's a process. And I feel like a lot of it is medication. I haven't been to therapy in a long time. I need to because I'm still working through stuff. Have my hard days. I was I was like yesterday morning sucked so bad, and uh, just got better throughout the day. Did a set, had a good set, like hung out with some friends. It was just a good time, and it'll be like you will think back to the beginning of the day. It's just like oh, I just I wanted to like self harm. I wanted to do that, like all that jazz, and it it just kind of it's crazy. Just be like, all right, you can take a step back, and then later on throughout the day it's like if i did that earlier in that mind state i would feel like such a like bag of poop right now and it's like kind of gives you perspective of just being like oh that was kind of something that wasn't uh, the proper state of mind to say the least but like wasn't like an actual thing that you need to like drive yourself crazy over sure do you think that the um the role of comedy is therapeutic as an outlet yeah, I mean, stand-up, it, that it, I remember when uh, COVID first started, I had a whole, 
weekend like of shows planned i had trips planned my i was working at the renaissance fair and then one day in march all my stuff got canceled and i got fired and then it was just like oh comedy doesn't exist anymore until the foreseeable future and that really sucked i started getting like heavy into little drinky boy tristan which was like i'm just sitting at home playing call of duty all day Mm -hmm. i'm like in december like i got covid like december 2020 i got covid and so i was just i was getting paid from home and stuff like that i was just chilling out and i'm just like all right i could drink like half a bottle of vodka a day i'll take that as a challenge and it just like that that stuff sucks because depression and like vices go very well together sure i'm sure it's isolating oh yeah it's super isolating and like part of you like at least in my uh perspective like it kind of craved the isolation i'm like i I just want to go in a hole and put a rock over it and just like sit and play video games and just disappear from everyone i don't want nobody to talk to me i just want to be gone and then, like, my friends will text me, and they'll be like, hey, we haven't heard from you in three days. Are you dead? I'm thinking about coming over to your house. And I'm like, nah, I'm chilling. I'm just sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's it's nice It's nice to have the people around you that kind of drag you out of that because I could have just, like, stayed for, like, a good portion of last year. I was just, like, super nihilistic, mm-hmm. like, for, like, probably a good solid, like, eight months. I'm like, I don't want to talk to people. I don't care. I'm like, just a whole, like, I don't care. (coughs) I'm like, the world doesn't care about me, so why should I care about anything? And, like, just super self-destructive. And, like, luckily, I've been able to kind of work somewhat my way out of that. And comedy really does help. Like, when it came back, I I was getting so nervous before I went on stage. I had to get, like, a prescription for Xanax. I was, like, barfing before every show. And, like, getting just... Even, like, open mics. Not, like, places I've been before. I was just so anxious and scared. of just being like, what? I haven't done stand-up comedy in five months. This is the longest I've ever done stand... Haven't done stand-up comedy during the career of me doing stand-up comedy. Like, it went from me taking, like, one week off, maybe, if I'm just, like, feeling super overwhelmed, to just four, five, six months just racking up. And, like... I'd go to a Zoom show and it doesn't feel the same. Right. I was just going to ask. It's like, it's just. The virtual comedy Zoom room. That sounds terrible. Ridiculous. Because you don't have that live validation. Yeah. It just stinks to high heaven. It sucks so bad. Compared like 75 people all in their like all in their own thing it's it's funny just because you'll be sitting there and it'll be a big zoom show oh my god everyone's excited there's a hundred people from all over the country and then you just hear someone who doesn't have like who has their stuff not muted or not (laughs) muted properly and they're just like no i'm watching a comedy show (laughs) no it's online yeah, it's an online comedy show. It's like, all right, I'm trying my best. You guys want to talk about Wikipedia? What's <laughs> up? Like, no, it's. I'm very happy it's back. So talk to me about the role of authenticity in comedy. So compared to kind of like a traditional nine-to-five career, how do you feel that being a comedian allows you to be authentic in your depression? And to a certain extent, it's really an an asset depression as an asset in terms of enhancing creativity yeah you have to be honest with comedy like you can't just go up there and just be like hey i'm six four and the coolest guy you'll ever meet no one's gonna laugh at you you have to be honest with 
like every single aspect of it and that's kind of what depression makes you makes you i mean like in an odd way it makes you a tad bit introspective or like where you can see just being like i'm gonna go look and just see the world in the perspective of hey it's not gonna give me anything where you just you're seeing things how it is and if i get something from it well boy isn't that cool but just being like a conscientious observer from the outside looking in, just being like, I don't care about me, man. I'll just look at stuff. But it that yields well to comedy because it kind of lets you look at things in a different perspective and kind of take a different look at it in a way that other people wouldn't have the kind of hindsight. Like if you're thinking about just like how much you suck all day, and they're just like, this sucks too. It's like, well, not as bad as me, but I can think of, figure about how much that sucks. Like, it, I don't know, it kind of adds a little creative touch. And plus, uh, you know, self-deprecation uh, self, uh, is funny. You know, people dig it. Just being like, I stink. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, <laughs> it's funny. So do you feel that you have more of an kind of accepting community in the comedy world in terms of being authentic and uh, discussing depression? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically every comic that I know has some form of depression where, like, (laughs) my buddy uh, Andrew Oriana, who uh, is a super funny comedian, we were talking one day, and I just overheard him say, he's like, I don't think I can quit stand-up comedy. I can kill myself, but I don't think I can quit stand-up <laughs> comedy. And he's like, it'd be easier just to off myself than to quit doing this. And I'm just like, yes, yes, queen. I feel that. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's just it, we're not generally a happy group of people. And I, I mean, and I feel like that kind of is a part of the authentic side because – you know, you see Kevin Hart, and it's just like he's talking about his family because that's all he can kind of talk about. It's like, you ever drive a Bugatti to the Rock's house? And it's like, no, we can't relate to that. And it's like, isn't it crazy when the chick who you pay to come to your house just to make you a smoothie in the morning? Like, it's <laughs> no, no one understands that. It's like, they, he's at such a different plane of existence that it's almost like that he needs people like that need humbling and i feel like depression kind of humbles you and it's in a sad way it's not great it's not there's not a lot of benefits to depression if being a stand-up comedian is a benefit just being like oh that helps you i'd rather not be a comedian than be like oh man i can just enjoy every day go throughout life like without needing to put serotonin in my body because my brain doesn't make it because it doesn't like me. But at the end of the day, it's like you you deal with the cards you're dealt. And it's weird because my parents kind of semi-understand it. They don't have it as bad as I did, which I don't know what my mom did. I don't know if she just ate like too many Cocoa Puffs or whatever when I was (laughs) like in the womb and it somehow affected my brain chemistry with all the like B5 or whatever. Um, but it it's uh it it takes a while when people are like more neurotypical to kind of understand where you're coming from, and luckily like I've been through it so much that they do understand. But at the beginning, like everything, it's tough. Sure. Yeah. What about writing? You're writing all the time. I try to. That also uh, is a thing that, while depression yields uh, in the in its favors it also has its cons because it's just like just unmotivated 
Like, I don't want to write. Like, I want to write. I have to write. When I start writing, I'm happy about writing. But just the act of doing it, like the act of actually sitting down, like I have to be super strict when I'm writing. It's silent. I can't, like, I can't have stuff playing in the background because I'm like, I'm super ADHD. I'll just tack onto that and not be able to pay attention to, like, what I'm actually writing down. And, like, I just have to, like, sit and write and just, like, be by myself. And it's it's like, I don't want to do all of that. I'm like, I can just chill out. But no matter what, whenever I'm doing it, it yields well. And it's good for my career. It's like, it's not hard to sit. Like, you, it's, it's, it's be like, when you think about it introspectively, it's like, oh, you clocking into work is you sitting down and writing in a notepad. Wow, so hard. Boo-hoo. Just do it. It's like, but at the same time, you're like, oh, the depression guy sitting on your shoulder is like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to do that. I could just have a white claw at noon and then <laughs> take a nap. Writing is hard, though. You I know? know. It's it so takes, tedious. It takes a lot out of you. But it's so, it, it's worth it no matter what. At the end of the day, it's worth it. It, it. Especially for comedians, it only yields well. It only helps in your favor. How do you handle it when you're on stage and it doesn't go as well as you wanted it to go? Oh, I just I just go into the audience. I'm just like, you didn't like that? Well, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm trying my best. You try this, you silly. <laughs> but uh, that happens a lot. Like, just, uh, you, the, the thing is, at least with the way I do stand up, is like I'll have certain jokes that I know will do well. And like I can just pepper them in there. So I'll be like, all right, old joke, old joke, new thing I'm working on. Old joke, new thing I'm working on. So no matter what, it's not always a bomb, which sometimes it is, and that sucks. Like, that that just eats your heart, and it stinks so bad. But no matter what, it gives you motivation to get on the stage again. And if you bomb again, then woof. But most of the time, you kind of learn from your mistakes and try to do a little bit better. You definitely go in with a, a little less of a, oh, I'm so funny attitude. You're just like, all right. It's game day. Like we're in the locker room. We got to get ready to make these people at a bar laugh. Right. It's like each day is a reset. Oh, yeah. It's like so weird giving so much like care, just caring so much about a show when people who are sitting there, first off, didn't even know there was going to be a show happening, just are eating chicken fingers. Don't care that you're there. Like open mics. It's it's insane. And then you go there. You're like, this is my craft. I've been working on this all day. And they're just like, eh, it's all right. Right, it's just extremely like, vulnerable. Completely unaffected. They're not going to remember it later on today. They're going to be watching Deal or No Deal, <laughs> straight up hand and Funyuns, not giving a good old care, while I'm sitting <laughs> raking my brain about why that dog joke didn't work, why it didn't make that person laugh. It's It's a completely lunatic mindset, if you think about it. But, hey, it's a living... You're quite young, too. You're only 23? Yeah, yeah. That's 24 incredible. in May. Yeah. That's incredible. So, I mean, your brain isn't even fully developed. Like, what do they say, 26? Oh, I have no clue, but that sucks. I wanted to be done with me. <laughs> develop already. What else could I learn? I don't I learned enough. I went to school and such. Not well, but I did it. I did school. <laughs> so tell me about advice you have for other people who have depression as part of their life other comics um first off i mean like i'm not 
obviously I'm not some sort of the uh, the person you had on before I in this podcast probably way more qualified to give <laughs> um, <laughs> advice. She's like, I have a foundation. I'm, I'm a rocket scientist. I treat depression in space, and <laughs> it's uh, I'm just sitting here. I'm like, hey, I'm doing open mics all week. What's up? I had to ask my mom for gas money, uh, and like. It, it's very ebb and flow. But uh, no, I'd say advice, um, typical advice that you hear, you're not alone, you know, everyone goes through some sort of, and it's just today, it's not going to be every day, and if sometimes it's two days in a row, look forward to the third day, and then if it's still the third day, it's just, it's all about taking things one step at a time. Uh, the past is the past. And the future isn't written, so you can try to do something. You can do 10 jumping jacks tonight. And hell, you could brag about that if you want. Flex, put it on Facebook. Just be say you did 100. You don't, nobody knows. They weren't <laughs> there. But just find something you love. That's kind of, it's hard because it's really hard finding something that you can dedicate yourself to and be bad at in the beginning and want to work harder to get better. It's hard to be like sitting there and I'm sure every woodworker didn't make a freaking bookshelf first day. It's like, no, you got to work at stuff. And eventually that helps with depression. Like in a way, it's like, say, if you love RC planes, like that's going to use sitting, tinkering with stuff like making glue in a wing to whatever. Like that's therapeutic in a way. Sure. It kind of lets your mind focus and sit at ease and just the tiny escapes that you, like me, like I personally need, like with stand-up, like I need stand-up. I can't, I don't know what I would do without it. I think about if stand-up wasn't real and I'm like, I, had to go to, I have to go to college? I'm like, this is terrifying. What, am I going to be a marketing man? What? That's scary. Uh, and I, it's, I'm so happy it exists. And people just need, for at least in my situation, need to find their stand-up. It doesn't have to be stand-up. It can be, like, write, writing stuff on... You can just write blogs. If that really gives you gratification, hell, you can make a job out of it sure, eventually. find your passion. Yeah, find your passion and just try to pursue it. Just don't put yourself in a box because that box rots very quickly and it sucks and just to have something to look forward to, even if it's, like, you're at your typical 9 to 5 and you're like, man, I can't wait to go home and knit or whatever I do that I love. I can't wait to go home or like it's something per constructive obviously. It's like not like oh I can't wait to go home and huff paint. Like no, <laughs> it should be something healthy and constructive. <coughs> but um yeah, I'd say that's the kind of the best advice. I, I love it. Give. I love it. Find your passion, work to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. You can only go forward. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Leader Voices. It's such a pleasure. I've seen you perform, and you are extremely gifted. Thank you're incredibly you. humble. And um, I hope that, you know, when you're on, like, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert, you'll, you'll remember us at Come Leader on, Voices. Oh, Jimmy Fallon, he sucks. <laughs> Whoever your favorite Jimmy guy Fallon's is. Lame. <laughs> I'm just going to go on YouTube. <laughs> I like his uh, Ben & Jerry's flavors. Oh, yeah, they won't. If the <laughs> best part about your comedy is your ice cream flavor, then well, it doesn't bode well with your comedy. Well, wherever you end up, we look forward to stalking your career. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully go somewhere. Pray, hopefully my parents. My parents are praying for that. They want, <laughs> they want a house. They have no retirement plan. It's me. 
<laughs> well, I believe in you. Yeah, so thank, thank you. So you. Much. Thank, thank you. you. Leader voices. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank both my guests, Elsie and Tristan, for speaking so candidly with us about a subject that many find difficult to disclose. It's interesting that both Elsie and Tristan conquered their depression by helping others. To learn more about Elsie Ramsey, please visit biggerthandepression.com. And to learn more about Tristan Bowling, please follow his tour dates. See you next time on Leader Voices. This show is brought to you by the American Express Leadership Academy Alumni Network, the Arizona State University Lodestar Center for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Innovation, and leaderstories.org. I'd like to thank all the people who make the show possible. Rick Bronson, my producer and co-writer. Caitlin Johnson, our engagement and associate producer. Michael Chang, our project and operations manager and the good folks at Drift Compatible Productions, specifically our audio engineer, Buck Newman. Without their help and my incredible talent, <laughs> this show would not be possible. See you next time on Leader Voices. I hope that what you heard leaves you inspired to lead the way. For more information and to be in the know about the show, visit us at leadervoices.global.